This podcast episode is inspired by a real question that a stranger sent me on social media. The message has been slightly edited to ensure anonymity. A quick content warning. This episode deals with issues of racism and femphobia and contains some harsh language. Suggestion. Replace the word fangirl with expert and see what happens. Jessica Hopper on Twitter at Jess Hop. I'm ambivalently yours, and this is season two of Rebelliously Tiny, a podcast where each week my co-producer Hannah McCaslin and I invite a special guest to help us respond to one of the thousands of personal questions I've received on social media. In a world that teaches us that strength is loud, harsh, and masculine, this is a place for those of us whose struggle is both impossibly large and rebelliously tiny. Here's the question that inspired this week's episode. I look way older than others my age because I'm more curvy. I'm also biracial, so my skin is more light brown, and I've got curls. I like pink, I like dresses. Boys have called me things like stupid fat black bitch as soon as I stood up for myself. And some of my friends who claim themselves as feminists tell me that I can't really be a feminist because of my obsession for girly things. Although I act like it doesn't, it does hurt me. All right, here we go. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Is that any better? Yes. Sorry, just. <laughs> Sorry, we're kind of um, we're doing a little recording in my bedroom right now. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Sunny is a young blogger from Australia. She's a self-described fangirl and an avid reader. Her lovely and well-written blog explores fiction and feminist ideas on a soft pink floral background. Um, I'm Sunny, I'm 17 from Australia, um, I'm a teen blogger, um, I talk about books and feminism and pop culture, um, yeah! Sunny and I live on opposite sides of the world. There's a significant age difference between us and we have different backgrounds, yet somehow we found each other online. In July of 2015, she interviewed me for her blog, A Sunny Spot. Her thoughtful, well-researched questions, her excitement and curiosity about feminism, and her unapologetic love of all things pink made me instantly want to be her friend. Ever since, we have mostly kept in touch via Twitter and Instagram, and we've watched each other's ideas of feminism grow, expand, and intersect. I think um, one of the things that first drew me to the question was that it was like, I felt like it was quite similar to me. Um, I'm half black, but, you know, super light skin, got curls, love pink, love dresses, curvy. So I was like, oh my goodness, this girl sounds like, you know, super similar in in that sense. But um, I think definitely a lot of the things she's talking about um, are so common, like, you know, people kind of associating with femininity, with weakness and girliness, uh, um, you know, with weakness, which I think is something, you know, you explore really brilliantly. But then also, you know, kind of other women policing, like, what is feminist and who can be feminist as well? Um, And then you've also got, like, the intersections of her being, you know, a woman of colour plus a woman 
um, plus, you know, curvy and a larger size. And so I think, like, obviously in that slur that she received, that was super translated through. So I think that was just really interesting because there were so many parts of it that were super specific to her and her identity, but also really common, I think. We recorded this interview in our respective bedrooms across the world through a slightly metallic and unsteady Skype connection. Despite the glitchy technical mediation between us, there was something very real and warm about our conversation. I think that um, one of the things that really resonated with me was, you know, know, that obsession for girly things, and I know that's something that we both share, and I think that... um, you know, I'm 17, going on 18 in a few months, and I still have everything in pink. You know, I'm still definitely very unapologetically um, girly, I guess you could say. Um, and I think I can definitely relate to that whole thing of like, oh, haven't you outgrown that? Or, you know, um, people kind of this like assuming that if you're a feminist, you know, people think, you know, they kind of bully on pink or they bully on these sorts of things, but, you know, you're so kind of proudly about that. And so I think... Um, it's really interesting hearing the user say this in the question because it kind of brings up how I think a lot of the time femininity has been so undervalued by society um, but at the same time so many people call upon you know what women can do and what they deem only women can do um, but it's so undervalued and so I think that um, I think a lot of her kind of like identity is in question a little bit and she's so much at the intersection of like a lot of different things which I think I can really relate to um and I think that you know it's just super interesting because you know that slur I think is just like the perfect example of how she's just in this situation where she kind of probably feels as if she kind of fits in multiple different spaces but at the same time doesn't really fit in many spaces um and I think for her, like, one thing I can relate to is just kind of learning to just stand boldly and be like, you know, however the world perceives your identity or whatnot, like, this is who you are. These are kind of the things that you're into. Um, and that doesn't take away from your feminism. If anything, that means that, you know, sometimes feminism has more work to do in making sure they cater um, to your identity. Um, in the book, Whipping Girl, a transsexual woman on sexism and the scapegoating of femininity, Writer, performer, biologist, and activist, Julia Serrano wrote, We must rightly recognize that feminine expression is strong, daring, and brave. That it is powerful. And not in an enchanting, enticing, or supernatural sort of way, but in a tangible, practical way that facilitates openness, creativity, and honest expression. We must move beyond seeing femininity as helpless and dependent, or merely as masculinity's sidekick, and instead acknowledge that feminine expression exists of its own accord and brings its own rewards to those who naturally gravitate towards it. By embracing femininity, feminism will finally be able to reach out to the vast majority of feminine women who have felt alienated by the movement in the past. I think what I really like about um, your online presence, I guess, is that you have a lot of like enthusiasm for things and you like love things, you fangirl things, and you're very unapologetic about that. Um, And I think especially within feminism, sometimes we forget that there has to be a really important place for joy and for loving things. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if you could talk a bit more about your relationship with being a fangirl. Yeah, I think that's that's such an interesting statement to make because it's so true because I think that, you know, obviously in activism or in any kind of social justice movement, there's a lot of kind of emotional work and that can be draining, especially like in this kind of climate that we're dealing with and it seems like there's always something jumping off or always something you have to defend. Um, and so I think there definitely can be a lot of joy forgotten. And I think that um, kind of whole linking to that whole girly thing, I've always just been super enthusiastic and, you know, when I like something, kind of getting a little bit obsessive. And I think that um, it's so awesome to live in the age of, like, fandoms and, you know, um, fan accounts on Twitter and whatnot because that makes it so much easier to kind of find your people and to just, you know, freak out about the things that you love. And I think it's just so um, important to be excited about things. And I think that um, a lot of times that's seen as a bit of a weakness, I think, fangirling. And I think, I don't know if we even maybe touched on this um, last time we spoke, but it's kind of like, you know, if you look at a stadium of girls in a One Direction concert, people just call it like hysteria and they kind of deem that absolutely crazy. Um, but then you look at men, you know, a sports game, and that's definitely kind of valued or less judged in society and so I think that um, when there's so much craziness going on I think it's important to be excited about the small things and to um, hold close to the things that make you excited or passionate and I think that there's definitely room for joy in feminism if anything it's probably really necessary is just a method of like self-care and self-preservation and keeping yourself sane I think um, and I know for me finding out feminism was like a really empowering thing um, I think that feminism doesn't necessarily just have to be a lens through which, you know, we express our anger at, you know, the patriarchy of the world, but I think it can also be a way to celebrate, you know, being females and kind of all the strength and resilience that we have. And so I definitely think that joy is kind of the only way, like it's necessary to it because otherwise we would just burn out. And I think there definitely is a lot that's super empowering that we should just find and embrace. One of the things I particularly love about Sunny is her ability to speak out about issues of gender and race in a very aware, clear, and unyielding way, while simultaneously bringing an enormous amount of joy and warmth into everything she does. It's easy to forget that joy is an essential emotion, especially when we are working hard and advocating loudly. It can become hard to justify the search for joy when the world we live in seems so full of pain and violence. But to quote Rebecca Stolnit from her book, Hope in the Dark, Untold History's Wild Possibilities, joy doesn't betray, but sustains activism. And when you face a politics that aspires to make you fearful, alienated, and isolated, joy is a fine initial act of insurrection. I guess moving on, and like to go back to the question, um, the person speaks a lot uh, in the question, talks a bit about like body image and how like their own like their own body like affects the way people uh treats them and how yeah and how they pretend it doesn't bother them but it really does and I know that you've been kind of writing a bit more about like body image and yeah do you want to talk a bit about about that um you know recently I read this really amazing book by an, a really famous um Instagram user body posy panda um I think her first name is Megan, but she wrote a book called Body Positive Power, which I read and was just so empowering. I definitely recommend like everybody check it out. But I think that um, it's 
it is unfortunate and I think it's always been the case that you know people see your shape of your size and then immediately without even knowing you there's a whole list of kind of adjectives or qualities that they would associate with you and I think that that can be really difficult um especially you know in that situation that she um listed where she received you know that kind of insult you know immediately her size was brought into it as a way to diminish her worth and suggest that, you know, her opinion didn't matter or her stance didn't matter. And so I think that, um, I just think that so much a society is trying to tear women down for, you know, the very essence of who they are and the way in which they're different. And it's so important to learn to establish like a critical mind about that and critical thinking. And like, I know feminism really helped me do that. And just really how society makes so much money, you know, in telling women, that they're not good enough and that they need to fix something or they need to work towards one standard of beauty that, you know, is not even necessarily possible for everyone and is so limited and, you know, uninclusive. Um, and so I definitely write about that a lot because I just, the more I talk with other women and, you know, obviously um, men as well, I just think it affects so many people on such a wide scale. It's, it's almost in some ways like this massive thing that affects all of us, but that's not necessarily like, um, a conversation that's kind of going on about it, you know, in schools or within friendship groups. I think that, you know, some people um, obviously go online and they look at body positive movements or, you know, they seek help if it's, you know, um, if they've got body image issues. But I think, um, you know, I was really surprised when I um, was speaking with my 12-year-old's niece, um, maybe she was 14 actually, um, who had such bad body image issues and she developed an eating disorder and it was because, you know, there was no narratives at school talking about body positivity and so instead when you kind of don't have that really strong narrative to cancel out all these things you're seeing online, all you're getting is, you know, magazines and social media specifically um, like Instagram kind of telling you that this is how you have to be and trying to get you to shrink yourself and I think that's one really major asset of it is that, you know, um, so much about it is like trying to get you, you know, so motivated to aspire to look one way that you kind of can't focus on anything else and that you need to be smaller and more petite and um, really, yeah, I think definitely to just shrink yourself um, and to feel bad about yourself and to not feel confident enough or strong enough to go out and do the things that you want to do. And so I think in that being something that I struggle with, I try to like actively remind myself and it's definitely difficult because I think we've all internalize those messages um and so there's a lot of work in undoing them but I think that discussing body positivity and just being really honest and open and creating that dialogue is is so important I think that's the only way we can kind of try and unravel everything that we've been told I I definitely agree that um that talking about it really makes a huge difference because yeah when you hear that other people can kind of relate to that or feel the same like it is really comforting to know that you're not alone in that and it and I think you you made a good point when you're talking about how so much of our society like profits from our insecurities and so I think that that makes the fact that when we decide not to let our insecurities um sort of control our actions or control how much stuff we buy um it, it can become like a really radical act to not worry but it's definitely something difficult and I think it's important to have like lots of narratives in the mainstream that we can 
look to that are alternatives to that. And I also think that there's a lot of potential in fiction to kind of create those those different worlds or those different narratives. Yeah, like you were saying, that's a really good point, that fiction can be such a powerful tool in, you know, showing the reality of a lot of other women's lives and, you know, showing that there's more than one type of way to be and that, you know, each of those girls and boys are worthy um, of having those stories as well. And also in just educating different people and how, you know, everybody carries around their body for their entire life, whatever kind of shape that takes. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a lifelong struggle people have to accept themselves. Like, you know, it's, it, you have this body for life, but everyone kind of goes through life differently, I think, depending on which body they're in. And I think that um, fiction is a really great way to kind of promote understanding of that and acceptance and to normalize, you know, bigger girls or smaller girls or girls of a different color also having those really important stories as well. I actually have a question. So I just wanted to ask, like, what are some of your favorite, like, books or, um, like, even, like, movies that you've watched? Because I saw you writing about movies on your blog, too. Like, yeah, so what have been some of your favorite things this year? Um, Lately, I've been really getting into just kind of simple, like, contemporary YA novels. I definitely tend to stick towards that area. I do read adult books, but for me, YA, I think... I can resonate it a lot to young adult fiction, but, you know, also it's a, a lot more kind of comforting and fun and um, makes you feel less alone. And so I think I've been finding a lot of fun in those guys recently. Um, I just finished rereading um, Jenny Hands to All the Boys I've Loved Before series. is a trilogy. Um, there's actually going to be a film adaptation of it coming on Netflix. And so that for me was definitely a really good like, way to just zone up for a couple of days, um, reading something really fun and really silly. Um, but definitely um, lots of different albums and movies I've been excited about. I've um, posted a review on my blog um, a couple of months ago about Love, Simon, um, which is a film I'm at at the moment. And I'm really excited about that. I loved the movie. I want to see it again. And it's actually based on a book um, called Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda that um, I read last year. And so I'm, I definitely am feeling really excited about that and you know want people to see it and read it. Um, and also just more really cool, diverse and fun films like, you know, A Wrinkle in Time and Black Panther. I'm definitely really excited and happy about those and just want to like support them and tell everyone to go and see them. You touched about, you touched on this a bit, but so I guess maybe you can elaborate more about like where you learn about feminism. So you said you had that one class, um, but like where else do you sort of learn? Definitely, I think. It was like online predominantly. Um, I kind of like before it was like I kind of went from zero to one hundred. I went from like knowing nothing at all about feminism to suddenly like wanting to take in as much you know feminist knowledge as I possibly could. Um, I just remember it being kind of a dirty word, but I didn't know at all what it meant. And I knew that I was like super. I was that kind of corny young girl who's like, yeah, girl power. And so that was kind of the extent of how much I knew about it and then I would probably say maybe like three or four years ago I started looking online um, and reading different things and like actually understanding what it was about and I think that is such a powerful tool because you know no matter who is talking about it or who isn't talking about it within your own communities or what other people think you can really get um, a really varied and really kind of in-depth and multifaceted look at it online and uh, definitely uh, 
your Tumblr was an amazing way for me to learn about it, different books. And so I'm really interested in like reading different like feminist um, essays and memoirs and like manifestos. And um, I really like as well looking at kind of the pioneers or people, feminists from different waves as well. Like um, Bell Hooks is one of my absolute favorites. I think she has such a good take on things. And like, I almost wish I could just hand that out as like a textbook. Um, You know, when I was, younger when I was your age like definitely the internet was like there was the internet I'm not that old but it was less it was less accessible you know like I didn't have the internet on my phone for example and I didn't spend as much time on it and I guess I didn't have as much like access to to information um yeah so it's always so exciting to me when I meet people who are younger and who are just like so much more advanced than I was um at that age and I think it's it's so wonderful to have access to more information because like you said because I think there was a lot of mistakes made in previous waves the like one of the main ones is that it was very centered around white women and a lot of people were excluded or their stories were just not told and I think that's still an issue, obviously, but at least there are more platforms for more stories to exist. Especially in Australia, like it's not that unheard of that you don't necessarily know or are friends with, you know, women of colour or, you know, a woman who is disabled or whatnot, you know, so you're not necessarily always exposed to those voices in person. And so I think it's so important just for everyone when they start to learning about it to just be conscious of like making sure they're reading from a wide spectrum of voices and you know not just one source yeah I think that's a really that's a really good point like to yeah to to not just learn from one person like you said not just learn from one source but to learn from different voices and also just to accept that there can be sort of like different definitions of feminism that coexist um it is reminding me though like I feel like the problem with there like remaining to be kind of like this issue of like white women being like oh like I'm a feminist but like not understanding um like why women of color have like different experiences or like not understanding like different movements to like end racism like speaking in like the North American context like I feel like it's hard sometimes for white women to understand like or to see racist structures as like a problem for themselves so they just see it as like a problem of somebody else and in turn they're like okay well like other people can deal with that because it's like not a problem for me so whatever and yeah I don't know it's like frustrating like how can we kind of yes like absolutely there can be like all these like different feminisms and different people working on different things absolutely but also kind of seeing how some issues do affect us all and like you know racism being entrenched in like every aspect of society is like also bad for white people because it's like basically like taking away from our humanity to be like participating in super evil I know that's like a big big question (laughs) but it does make me think about that and I do hope that the internet is like helping to kind of facilitate these exchanges but the history of feminism is so linked with racism and segregation that it's like impossible 
people to kind of learn about the early waves without kind of seeing, you know, how they intersected the whole way through and why that um, affects it today. And I think like even a really simple thing of like um, a lot of white feminists don't understand why some black women, for example, ne won't necessarily claim the title of feminist or why they choose to identify as black feminist or as a womanist. And I think like there then becomes that misunderstanding, the whole thing of, well, you can't be a feminist or what's going on. Um, and I think that all of those misunderstandings can really be minimized by reading as widely as you can from different voices. Um, because I think to me, um, I just don't think that white feminism is feminism because any feminism would understand that, you know, any struggle that is happening to any woman um, needs to kind of be dismantled. Um, but I also think that if you're a feminist, you are likely someone who cares about humans in general and are probably going to be upset about any sort of like discrimination or oppression that anybody's facing, regardless of, you know, gender or race. Um, so I think it is it's so disheartening to see. And I think that this kind of wave and generation could be the one to really change the tide of things from how they were in the previous waves, which is exciting to see. Um, but, you know, every day I'm surprised by encountering someone who is still so uneducated or who, or who still feels like, um, you know, talking about how different women or women of colour experience different things is like, you know, not a feminist issue or is stirring away the conversation, um, you know, losing track of the focus. There's so many people who think that. And I just think for those people, unfortunately, they haven't really got the right focus and are not seeing feminism as a movement for all women. I think that... Um... You said, like, the important word is, like, listening. And I think that sometimes people learn about feminism, especially now that it's very trendy. Um, and they learn about it, and then they get really excited, and they want to go out there, and and that's great. But they forget sometimes to listen and to... And that I feel like feminism is, like, a it's like a learning curve. Like there's a learning curve to it, but you, you're always, you should always be learning. You should never reach that point where you're like, all right, that's it. I'm a feminist now. Like I got it. <laughs> you know, the movement is just stronger. The more sort of different voices um, are there. And I think it relates back to the question with that person's friends telling them that they're, not a feminist if they like girly things and again it's just like another way of trying to define feminism as this narrow thing for one kind of person um yeah and it's oversimplifying what femininity means um it's almost like reinvesting in like the patriarchal idea of femininity and it's unfortunate because a lot of Fem young feminists that I've encountered, like especially like in a middle school middle school setting, kind of believe that to be feminist or to be um, appealing to guys or I don't know to be grown up, you have to kind of shun girly things and femininity. But I think that that's kind of what the patriarchy has wanted us to do for years, and I think that there is you know I think that femininity um, is. Yeah, it's, it's something that is like, there's so many layers to it. And I think that we have the power to redefine it, but to also um, embody it in so many different ways, not just, you know, how we've been told that we have to be. And I think that, um, I think it's time to kind of like bring power back to it and to, to 
give it more value and to not think of it as this weak um, and inferior, um, you know, way of being. But I think... Another facet of joy is the act of love. And when I say love, I mean the unapologetic, over-the-top, enthusiastic love that exists nowhere else like it does inside the hearts of those of us still in touch with our inner teen girl. The teen girl intense way of loving things loudly and embarrassingly through fandoms, fanzines, fanfictions is a radical resistance against a world that cultivates coolness and apathy. The things we love inspire us to find each other, to relate to one another, to support one another, and to write our own stories. And that's what the world needs now, more than ever. More stories. The stories we never hear. The stories we've been tricked into thinking are unimportant. Those stories have the potential to change how we think and relate to each other. And they have the potential to help us redefine how we allow ourselves to take up space and make noise in this world. To quote Jessica Hopper again, this time from her book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, us girls deserve more than one song. We deserve more than one pledge of solidarity. We deserve better songs than any boy will ever write about us. And I think it's so empowering and inspiring for me when I go on and listen to your podcast or see your posts and, you know, see you painting your voice and, you know, also speaking to so many different women and their experiences. And I think you have a really awesome way of, like, capturing what so many women at any time have all felt like it's just crazy how like I'll see one and be like oh my goodness like I so feel that or I so understand that and I think that is so powerful and that in everybody claiming their voice there's so much solidarity and community um and kind of comfort that can be um felt by that like there's so much power in doing that and so I think I would say to anyone listening that to definitely not let your voice be squashed and I would thank you for using yours and you know creating that safe space and community um for different girls yeah, well, thank you. Um, it's been so nice to watch you, like, kind of grow, and and it's been nice to, like, maintain our friendship and, like, through the internet, and yeah, thank you for, like, the work that you do and the writing and your joy and enthusiasm and the flowers and pink that you bring into the world. Um, definitely brightens my day, and following you on Twitter kind of helps me stay kind of a little bit more in the know of what's going on in pop culture, which I appreciate. And so thank you. To learn more about Sunny's work, you can visit her wonderful blog, www.asunnyspot.com.au. Rebelliously Tiny was written, produced, and edited by me, Ambivalently Yours, and co-produced and co-written by Hannah McCasland. The music is by Greg Barkley. This episode was recorded in the field and at Obero Artist Run Center in Montreal, with technical support from Stéphane Claude. A special thanks to the entire team at Obero for their kindness and support. To learn more about my work and this podcast, please visit ambivalentlyyours.com or follow us on social media at RebelliouslyTiny on Instagram and Facebook, at RebelliousTiny on Twitter. If you would like to be a guest on the show or submit an anonymous question of your own, please send us an email at rebelliouslytiny at gmail.com or email us an audio recording of your question. You can also DM us on any of our social media accounts. 
If you would like to support our podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to make a financial contribution, please email us at rebelliouslytiny at gmail.com. This season is entirely listener-supported, and we are eternally grateful to everyone who shared and contributed to our Kickstarter campaign in the fall of 2017. Thank you.